We interrupt our consideration of the epistle to the Ephesians on this Whit Sunday in order that we may consider together the message of that great and notable second chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, most of which we read together just now. Now, I do that uh, quite deliberately because it is always of vital importance that we should remember that our faith consists of two parts. First of all, there is the history, and secondly, there is the truth, the doctrine that is derived from the history and which is an exposition and an explanation of the history. And I say it is of supreme importance that we should always bear in mind both aspects of our faith. We are spending our time thus week after week in considering the mighty doctrine and teaching of the epistle to the Ephesians. But if we ever lose sight of the fact that all the wealth that we have there is the result and the outcome of certain things which God has actually done, well then the doctrine will avail us nothing. We are constantly, because of our fallen natures, in dangers, in danger of falling into various errors. There are those who spend all their time with the facts and who ignore or neglect the doctrine, and there are those who give themselves so exclusively to the doctrine that they tend to forget the facts, and therefore even the person himself out of whom all the doctrine is, comes and concerning whom it is all an exposition. Therefore, I say, it is of great importance for us to observe these great facts, and we are reminded of them by certain days in the calendar of the church. It is good for us to remember the birth of our Lord, whether it happened on the 25th of December or not is, is quite immaterial, but what is important, I say, is that we should constantly remind ourselves of that fact that he was born on a given day at a given time in a given place. And likewise with Good Friday and with Easter Sunday and likewise with the Ascension and likewise with this day of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit upon the church in that amazing and remarkable manner. Well, now then, I want to consider the message of this chapter with you in general, because obviously if we're going to look at it in the way I'm suggesting, we don't concentrate on one verse, but we take the whole episode. There is, I sometimes think, no more thrilling chapter in the whole of the Bible than this. You notice I say thrilling. It's not greatest from the standpoint of teaching and of doctrine, but from the standpoint of it's sure thrilling, exhilarating character and quality. There is surely nothing that is equal to it. There is nothing, therefore, which is more encouraging to the church. There is nothing which should be so stimulating to all Christian people. And indeed, we can safely say that there is no more important chapter there are certain things, therefore, about this which we must always bear in mind. I've already been emphasizing one of them, and that is that this is history. This is a fact. 
as you and I are meeting together here this moment, so long ago there in Jerusalem, all these apostles the hundred and, uh, and their followers, the hundred and twenty, were met together in an upper room, and suddenly this happened. And all the rest that is described in the chapter actually and literally happened. Now, that I say is something that we must always hold on to. It's fact. It is history. This is, of course, the great watershed that divides the Christian faith uh, from all other religions and philosophies, that this is always based upon facts. It isn't a mere teaching. It is a teaching, but it's more than a teaching. It is solidly based on historical events and facts. And I say it is only at our peril we ever lose sight of that or lose our firm grasp of it. Now, this is, of course, the last of the great facts in connection with the work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ here on earth. And therefore, we must always put this fact in series with the other facts to which I have just been referring. And it is the last great proof of the fact that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Son of God and the Savior of the world. He himself put it, you remember, like this. He said, when he is come, referring to the Holy Ghost, he shall convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Well, now, how does that work? Well, it works like this. The coming and the sending of the Holy Ghost, as described here, is an absolute proof that he is the Son of God. You see, his prophecy is verified. He said this would happen, and here it is happening. If he had been but a man, well, this would never have happened at all. For what this really means is this, that the Lord Jesus Christ, having done on earth all the work which the Father had given him to do, he had come to live under the law, he had come to take unto him human nature and to honor the law of God, he had come furthermore to bear the sins of men and to bear their punishment. That was the work that had been given to him. And he has completed the work. And he has returned, ascended unto heaven. And as it were, as a reward for all that he has done, God the Father gave him the Holy Spirit and he gives the Holy Spirit to the church. It is the final proof, therefore, of all the claims that he made for himself. That he is the Son of God, that righteousness is alone to be found in him. That is why the Spirit convicts the world of righteousness. There is no righteousness apart from that which is in Christ, which has been produced in the way I have just reminded you of. And finally, therefore, the Holy Spirit convicts of judgment to come, because by the death of Christ and the cross and his resurrection, the prince of this world has been judged. He has been condemned, as Paul puts it, he has been put to an open shame. He has been cast out of heaven. And it all happened as the result of that. Well, now then, the coming of the Holy Spirit is a proof of all this. And therefore, you see, it is the last great proof of the fact that Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God and the Lord of glory. The resurrection was a mighty proof in itself. This is a further proof, substantiating it, underwriting it, 
still more soundly and truly. Very well, we bear all that in mind at once. But the thing to which I want to call attention today is this. That in a sense, this is the real beginning of the Christian church as we know her. Now I add that for this reason. It is not the beginning of the church. There was the church in the Old Testament, as Stephen pointed out in his sermon. The church was there already while our Lord was still on earth in one sense. But in this new sense, in the way we know her, the church rarely came into being, and this is the commencement of the activity of the church in history. And therefore it is something, obviously, which is of very great importance for us. I would go so far as to say this, that we really don't understand the Christian church unless we understand the message of this chapter. We certainly don't understand Christianity, the Christian message, the Christian faith. And it is likewise quite impossible to understand church history or Christian history or the history of the Christian church in the world. In other words, I'm anxious to try to show you the relevance of this message, this chapter, to the whole position and situation of the church at this present hour. This uh, whole doctrine of the Holy Spirit, and especially the history as given here, always points to the, the church herself and all that is true uh, concerning the Christian church. So there are certain lessons which are to be learned and which can only be learned as we understand uh, what we are told in this chapter. Now the first is this. We have here the only explanation as to how Christianity ever spread in the world and became the power that it did. Now, this is where I say the relevance of all this to us today is so significant. Have you ever stopped and considered the whole thing from this angle? Look at the situation when our Lord had returned into heaven and had ascended again into the heavens. He'd been here on earth, he'd been teaching, he'd been, and these men were following him, these disciples, but suddenly he's crucified, he dies, he's buried, he rises again, speaks to them 40 days, and then he disappears out of their sight and enters again into the heavens. And here these men are left on earth. Now the whole situation seems completely and entirely impossible. They were ordinary men, a number of them were fishermen, there seems to be no evidence at all that any single one of them was a man of uh, outstanding uh, ability or learning. They were certainly men of no influence. They'd got no social position whatsoever. None of them had been trained as Pharisees. None of them were doctors of the law. None of them had been to the schools. They were very ordinary people with apparently nothing whatsoever to recommend them. Not only that. They were men who were utterly disconsolate. The death of their Lord had been a terrible and a shattering blow to them. They were bewildered. They couldn't understand it. Not only that, we are given to understand very plainly and clearly that they were filled with a spirit of fear. We are told in the 20th chapter of the Gospel according to St. John that they met together in a room and all the doors and windows were shut for fear of the Jews. 
Now there are the men who were left here on earth with this amazing message, this wonderful truth. Well, you would have thought that it could never have come to anything. Everything seems to be against them. Who are such men to preach and to teach? Is it conceivable, one is tempted to ask, that a handful of men of that description and of that character could ever make any impression whatsoever upon the world, that they should ever figure in the great history of humanity, and that Christianity, the thing they stand for, should be the most notable thing in the whole course of world history. It seems quite preposterous and unthinkable. But then you can add to, to the, what I've said certain other factors. The world in which they lived was hostile to them. The Jews were violently opposed to them. They had been very bitterly opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. So much so that uh, they had been responsible uh, for his death by crucifixion. All uh, the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the scribes, the most learned people, the religious people, the religious authorities, plus the secular authorities, the king, and the Roman power, they were all against them. They had, as I say, with great malice, opposed the Lord himself from the very beginning, and they had become so venomous, and had plotted together, and had worked up the people, so that the mob had cried out, Away with him, crucify him. Now there's your position, your situation. But ah, you say, the disciples knew about the resurrection. I agree. The resurrection had made a great change in these men, and yet it hadn't gone very far. They're still confused and muddled. We are told in the first chapter of this book of the Acts of the Apostles that they were still thinking in a kind of materialistic manner. They asked our Lord, When, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? Their whole idea was still one. Not only that, their whole story about the resurrection had been ridiculed again by the Jewish and the Roman authorities. Nobody believed it. They regarded it as just a kind of fairy tale. Well, I needn't keep you. I'm simply trying to paint in the picture for you. Doesn't it seem quite impossible that this message should ever have any impact at all upon such a world? And yet we're all familiar with the facts. We know what has happened. We know that in a few centuries, this handful of people, this despised sect, this message which was so ridiculed, all this became the official religion of the great Roman Empire. We know that it spread throughout the entire Roman Empire. And we know that since then it has spread throughout the entire world. Now there is just a fact, a phenomenon, which we are bound to face. And what we ask, of course, is this. How did it happen? How could it have happened? These men, I say, had got nothing. Nothing to recommend them at all. No ability, no natural powers as far as we can see. Certainly no support. They hadn't got big finance behind them. They couldn't go in for an advertising campaign. Nothing like that. They had no resources whatsoever. And everything that could be against them was there and militant, militantly against them. 
they were facing, especially in the Jews, the most vitriolic opposition. For the Jews felt that the teaching of this Jesus was blasphemy, that it was cutting under the very foundations of their religion and their belief. Now, I say that there is nothing that is so impossible as the success of this little group. And yet you remember this second chapter tells us in and of itself without going any further that in spite of all that I've been saying in one day 3,000 were added to the company. And how did it happen? There's only one answer. It is this descent of the Holy Ghost. It is this power of the Holy Spirit. It's the thing that is described in this chapter. Something happened to these men. They were transformed. And as the result of this, they spoke with authority. And men trembled and quaked and cried out. It's the only explanation of the spread of the Christian church. Now, it's so difficult for us to remember this, isn't it? You see, our whole outlook has become so different. The church is large, in a sense, is larger as an organization. And she's known about by all people. There isn't this same active, militant opposition in most countries. And, of course, it's a part of the tradition. And the church has power and the church has money. There was a time at the beginning when the apostles said, Silver and gold have I none, but that's no longer true. The church can command thousands of pounds and use them for advertising and so on. And the result is, we tend to forget how the thing happened at the beginning. And yet, my friends, it's the beginning that matters. Here is the pattern. Here is the norm. Here's the standard. This is how God started this thing. And this is the way in which it happened. It is all to be explained in the descent of the Holy Ghost. It's all the power of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing else at all. They were entirely dependent upon this. And this alone provides us with an explanation of what took place. Very well, I say, there's the great starting point, but that leads me to my second principle, which is this. This is not only the only explanation of what happened at the beginning. It's not only absolutely essential to an understanding of the spread of Christianity. It is also, in the same way, the pattern of every subsequent revival and reawakening of religion. And that, again, is, of course, is a most astounding and important fact. You read the history of the church and how important it is for us to do so. And you will find that every revival that's ever been known in the church has always been an exact reproduction of this. This is how it's always happened. The church has become weak and ineffective. After a great period of revival, slowly the enthusiasm has waned and people have gone back again into their ordinary methods and ways and habits and have expected nothing and people have fallen off and the church has become smaller in numbers, has dwindled, the statistics have shown it. There seems to be no life, no energy, no understanding. Oh, it's happened so often. It happened after this period of Pentecost had passed. A dull, lethargic era came into the church. There was lifelessness, and they'd become a small company again. 
And uh, indeed, uh, all I've said about the position of these apostles has become true once more. And the church has almost been forgotten. And there have been clever men and women in the world who said, Ah, the church is finished. Christianity is played out. Nothing can ever again happen. Now all that happened in the Middle Ages. It all again happened even after the Protestant Reformation. A dryness and a deadness came in. But then you get your Puritan awakening. And then that waned again and passed off. So that towards the end of the 17th century and the beginning of the 18th century, in the period of Queen Anne and George I, the church in this country was not only moribund, but many people said she was actually dead. There seemed to be no life, there seemed to be no power, there was nothing at all. Men were trying to save the church with their apologetics. Uh, uh, you had your boy lectures come in, into being, and Bishop Butler writes his analogy in, in order to try to defend and buttress the faith. The things were in an appalling condition. And then you remember what happened, that great evangelical awakening and revival. And again in the same way, nobody had ever heard of John and Charles Wesley and George Whitfield. They seemed to be quite unimportant people. They were not bishops or great dignitaries. Uh, they uh, seemed to be just nobody, as it were. And just a handful of people, they come together and are concerned about these things. And they begin to pray and to read their scriptures and to purify their lives and live in a methodical manner. And out of that suddenly comes this kind of thing again and a mighty revival and reawakening. Now, I say that this is the pattern, always. From an apparent position of hopelessness and of utter helplessness, this mighty movement of the Spirit comes again. And so what we have in this second chapter of Acts is not only the key to the understanding of the early church, it's the only key that enables us to understand every revival and reawakening. And you watch how those movements have developed from very small beginnings, indeed from practically nothing. It has always happened. Now, there's a great illustration of all this, I always feel, in the 16th chapter of this book of the Acts of the Apostles, where we read an account of how Christianity first came to Europe. And I always see in that chapter an element of divine humor, not to say divine irony. Do you know how Christianity began in Europe? You remember how Paul came across the sea and landed in a place called Philippi. Now here he is, the herald of the gospel, bringing the new message. How did he do it? Did he set up a great committee and start planning, and then have a great public meeting in the heart of Philippi with the Lord Mayor in the chair, and a great fanfare of trumpets? Well, you won't find anything like that in the 16th chapter of Acts. This is what literally and actually happened. The apostle walked round the city and he discovered that there was a little handful of women who had a prayer meeting on Sunday afternoons outside the city wall by a river. Not even in the city. They were probably not allowed to meet in the city. Or perhaps they were afraid to meet in the city. They were Jewesses and Jewish proselytes. They met in a little prayer meeting, only women, outside the city wall on Sunday afternoons. And this great apostle to the Gentiles, he just walked out of the city and went through the gate 
and saw the little group by the side of the river, and he sat down amongst them and spoke to them. And out of that came the thrilling, mighty, momentous story of Christianity in Europe and from Europe throughout the whole world. That's God's way. A repetition is here of Acts 2. And every single revival of history has always come in the same way. Not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. Not the power of men, not man's organization, not man's advertising. No, but the spirit possessing men and empowering them. That's how it happened in Acts 2, Acts 16. Every revival that has ever been known in the long history of the church. But for some reason or another, we don't seem to be aware of this. You see, the situation again has become the same. We are but a remnant. The church is but a small company. And we are constantly being told about the world and its antagonism. We are being told that we are up against modern learning and science and knowledge. And all this materialism, we are being told, how can you touch the people? They're not interested. They don't even know the alphabet of what you're speaking about. And if they came to listen to you, they wouldn't understand. They wouldn't know your very terminology. They're all against you. And they ridicule it, and they laugh at it, and they say nobody any longer believes such nonsense. And we put all our emphasis on that, and we are studying the, the world, and therefore the methods of how to appeal to it, and how to attract to it. What can we do to interest it? Let's speak in its own language, we say. Let's do something that it does understand. That's how we are approaching it. But that isn't how the apostles approached it. They were not having a perpetual grand committee in the upper room, considering means and ways and methods. No, no, they spent their time in prayer. They were waiting for this promise of the Spirit. They turned their back, as it were, in a sense, upon the world, because they knew that as they were, they couldn't touch it. Our Lord himself had told them that. He said, tarry in Jerusalem. Why? Well, because they needed power. He said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power, but ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the world. He'd already said this to them. He, being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Spirit, which saith he, ye have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost, not many days hence. And then he goes on with that further promise. But we seem to have forgotten all this. We seem to think that it's something that you and I are going to do. My friends, we've got to start with this realization that we can do nothing any more than these apostles could. Here were men, you see, who'd been with the Lord himself for three years. They'd heard all his messages. They'd seen his miracles. They'd seen him crucified, buried. They'd seen him risen again. They'd heard his own teaching after, after his resurrection. No men could have been at a better advantage from that standpoint. And yet he tells them that they've got to wait until they've been given the power, for without it they can do nothing. But then having been given the power, they can do everything. 
So I say that this is the message for the church today. Let's face the world as it is. It is hopeless. They don't understand the language. I agree. Here's our message. How can we get it over? The answer is there is only one way, and that is this power of the Holy Ghost, and nothing else at all. Men can try everything else as he is trying and has tried. It'll come to nothing. He'll make no impact upon that world. The power of men cannot succeed. This is God's method. Very well, how does it happen? What takes place? We are told in this chapter. You notice the first thing is that something happens to the believers. Something happens to the church. It's in the upper room the first thing takes place. Here again I would ask a question, are we not forgetting this? Isn't there a tendency today to assume that the church is all right and that all you need to do is to evangelize the outsider? Isn't all the attention being given to ways and means of interesting the outsider and attracting him? We don't start with the church any longer. The church is all right, we say she's got her message. Ah, it's only how to get it over. No, no, we start with the church. You see, nothing happened to the world until something had first happened to the apostles, to the men in the upper room. And it's always this, you take any revival you like. It is always a movement that starts in the church. And you can't affect the world until the church is put right and is filled with this power. It started in the upper room. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Of one accord in doctrine, believing in the same Lord, knowing the value and the meaning of his death and resurrection. You can't get revival without truth, without doctrine. You can't. You can bring people together and organize. It'll get you nowhere. There must be one accord. There must be agreement about truth. We must preach the same message. And it's always made plain. The person, the death, the blood, the resurrection, the power. It's all here. One accord. It starts in the church. And any hope to evangelize or influence the masses until the church has been put right will come to nothing and will be made to look ridiculous in the eyes of the world. Very well, it starts in the church and what happens there? Well, it's all so gloriously displayed here. This is what happens. The coming of the Holy Ghost gives the church a great certainty about the Lord. You know, these apostles knew him better on this day of Pentecost than they'd known him even when he was with them. He told them that. He had said to them, Let not your hearts be troubled. It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I go away, I will send him unto you. Now, have you ever realized the significance of that? Here is the Lord Jesus Christ looking at these very men and saying, Look here. It's a good thing for you that I'm going to leave you. It's impossible. How can it be? How can it be better for them that he should not be in their presence in a literal, physical sense? What can they do without him? Well, what he says is this. When I've gone away from you, I'll come back to live in you in the Holy Spirit. And you'll know more about me and understand me better when I've gone from you than you do now. And it literally was the case. While he was still with them, they fumbled and stumbled. They couldn't understand his teaching about his death and resurrection. It was always an offense to them. 
But after this they gloried in it. They rejoiced in it. What is it? Well, the Holy Spirit had come with such illuminating power that he was real to them. He was with them. He was within them. And they were likewise filled with great joy. And his love had been shed abroad in their hearts. These men were so filled with joy that to some ignorant people standing around, they appeared to be drunk. They said, these men are filled with new wine. Look at them. What was it? It was the ecstasy and the joy of the love of Christ shed abroad in their hearts by the Holy Spirit. They'd never known it like this before. They knew him. They experienced him. They felt that he was with them. And they saw his love and the love of God in a way they'd never even imagined. And all this was pouring into them, and they were filled with such a joy they could scarcely contain themselves. That's what happened. That is what always happens in revival. You couldn't have had a better man than John Wesley before the 24th of May, 1738. And he'd come now into the teaching of the Moravians to see the true doctrine, but still it was lifeless and ineffective until, he says, my heart was strangely warmed. The love of God had warmed his heart through the Spirit. And so he's transformed and his ministry. It's always the same. And then you see, in addition to this experience of the Lord and his love and his glory, they are given great power. And the church without this power can do nothing. What's the power for? Well, it is to witness unto him. Ye shall receive power and shall be witnesses unto me. And you see an example of it in pre Peter's preaching there on that day of Pentecost. What was the power that was given to him? Well, here it is, isn't it? To start with, he was given a wonderful understanding of the Scriptures. He'd been very dull about it before, but now it's all open and plain to him. He expounds these psalms. He brings in the prophecies. He puts them all out. He suddenly got an understanding which he never had before. The Holy Spirit does that. It enables a man to understand the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. We've seen Paul saying to the Ephesians, that's what happened. He hadn't got it before. Stumbling, hesitant, broken, stuttering as it were. But suddenly he speaks with a new authority and with a new eloquence which he couldn't understand. And then on top of all was a wonderful boldness and fearlessness. Look at this man who denied his own Lord in order to save his skin just before the resurrection. When the servant maid said, you belong to him, don't you? He said, I don't know him. Then he was challenged again. He said, I never heard of him. The third time, with oaths and cursing, he swore, I'm not interested in him. Why, why all that? Why that baseness and cowardice? Ah, he was afraid of death, afraid of his own life being lost. But here he is standing before these authorities these great Jews, the religious leaders, and he challenges them. He said, you and your rulers in ignorance have put to death the prince of life. You didn't know what you were doing. With a boldness and a fearlessness, he stands up before the whole world. It's the Holy Spirit that enables the men to do that. And then he's given an amazing power to convict them of sin. And that's what's needed. The world won't believe in Christ until it sees its need of Christ. 
And the world needs to be convinced and convicted of its sin. It doesn't believe in sin. It doesn't today. It didn't then. It never has done. The world is always the same. Don't be put off by the fact that it talks psychologically now and didn't then. It's the same thing. Opposition to God, hatred of God, love of sin and iniquity and all that is evil. And it needs to be convinced and convicted of sin. I can't convict anybody of sin. No other men can. But the Holy Ghost can. Peter apparently stood up and just quoted and expounded scriptures. But this is what happened. He went on preaching and they began to cry out saying, Men and brethren, what shall we do? They're alarmed and they're terrified. They're shaking. They're quaking. The conviction of sin has been brought home to their hearts. They were pricked in their hearts. Their minds were disturbed. And they came falling to the ground in terror and alarm and crying out for salvation. It's always like that, says the Apostle Paul. I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. I didn't come to play up to you and to wheedle you and to get round you, as it were, with my eloquence or my rhetoric or with my organization or my arrangements. No, no. I came and stood alone on the word and in demonstration of the spirit and of power that your faith might not stand in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. And so it happened. Here are these antagonistic Jews, the haters of Jesus and the truth about him. Here they are crying out for salvation and the apostle leads them to him. And the result is that 3,000 people who'd awakened that morning, hating Christ and all his message, are humbled before him, believe in him, and are joined to the despised Christians. And that's how it's always happened. The state of this country of ours, just over 200 years ago, was even worse than it is today. This country was dead spiritually, steeped in iniquity, and yet you remember what happened as the result of that evangelical awakening. What was it? Well, it wasn't the ability of Whitfield and Wesley. Whitfield was perhaps the greatest orator the world has known since Demosthenes. But that can't save a soul. That can't convict of sin. People can sit and listen to oratory and admire it and say, wasn't it wonderful? And go back and live the same life and not believe anything. No, no. It wasn't that Wesley was perhaps one of the greatest organizing geniuses the world has ever known. It isn't any of these things. It wasn't Jonathan Edwards in America, as, his, as a philosopher only, as a profound philosopher, one of the greatest of all times. It wasn't that. What then? Well, it was that they were filled with this power, this self-same spirit. God was reviving his work. And strong men were convicted and fell down in an agony of conviction and cried out for mercy and for salvation. It's always been like that. It was like that at the beginning. It's been like that always in every period of revival and reawakening. Very well, my friends, what have you and I to do? It's perfectly simple, isn't it? What we have to do is to believe again in the Holy Ghost. We've got to believe this history. We've got to say that though the position is hopeless, it is not hopeless with God. We've got to rely only upon the power of the Spirit. 
We have, as it were, got to wait in this sense for the power of the Spirit. We've got to cease from our bustling activities and our attempts to evangelize and to realize that though we are nothing and despised and have nothing, when we are put right and filled with the Spirit, we shall be used and conviction will take place and men who are antagonistic will become willing captives to the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to return to a belief in the power of the Holy Ghost. And to rely upon that and upon that alone. And remember, this is something that we need individually. Peter said, the promise is unto you and to your children and to as many as are afar off. And he was referring to the gift of the Holy Ghost. Let me put it like this then. The duty of every one of us at this moment is this. Do we know the Lord Jesus Christ? in a manner which is superior to that which we would have had if we'd been alive when he was here on earth? That's it. I say that what happened to these men was that Christ was more real to them after this than he was even when he was with them physically. Is he with us like that? Do we know him? Has he manifested himself to us? Do we know anything of this joy? It's possible to all Christians, every Christian. Has his love been shed abroad in our hearts? Is there that about us which makes people amazed at us? And leads them to wonder as to what's happened to us? This is where we begin. It must happen to all of us. The Lord must be so real to us and we must know him and his love and his grace and his glory so that we are lost in a sense of wonder, love and praise and we must give ourselves no rest nor peace until we come to that. We don't sit back and simply give contributions to organizations. No, no. This starts in the church. It isn't somebody else who's going to do it. It's the 120. It's you and I. But we not only seek that for ourselves individually, we must seek it for the whole church. The one thing that really does alarm me today is the way in which people are not praying for revival. They're praying for blessings on movements and organizations. They're not praying for revival. Their faith is in men, you see, and ask God to bless what men are doing. No, no, we must pray for revival, for God to come again in this way. So Acts 2, Acts 16, Protestant Reformation, Puritans, Wesley, Whitfield, every revival, 1859, go through them all. We must pray for God to come again upon the church in this way. And when God thus comes into the church in his Holy Spirit, you will have no need to worry about the world outside. Once they hear that this is happening, they'll come crowding as they did on the day of Pentecost. And you'll have no need to force them to decisions. They'll cry out saying, men and brethren, what shall we do? There'll be no need to bring that sort of pressure. The word, the spirit will do it. The conviction will take place. And in their horror of their sinfulness and their alienation from God, they will bombard us seeking relief, seeking a knowledge of sins forgiven and of reconciliation unto God. Oh, that God may use this Whit Sunday, this anniversary of the day of Pentecost to bring the church, to bring us all back to the realization that without him we can do nothing. 
but that in his power and might and strength all things are possible. And the word will go out with might and authority and conviction. And men and women whom you think today of as hopeless will become willing and ready captives of our blessed Lord and Savior. It all starts there to get to know him and to experience his love to such an extent that you feel with these first Christians that you cannot but speak of the things which you have seen and heard. May God have mercy upon us and bless us to that end. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.